This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here as always. Man, we got some stuff to talk about today. Oh, yes, we do. I I had had moments early on after Donald Trump's victory. I had had moments where I thought to myself, um, they're going to sort of take some time to grieve and also prepare uh, for the all-out assault on a Trump administration. You know, they would sort of lick their wounds, the Democrats, the left, they would lick their wounds and uh, come up with some strategy to just dramatically undermine the president uh, that th- th- this was, you know, the, the plan, essentially. That's what they would do. And I, I didn't expect that they would hit it right away. <laughs> you know, we've seen it now for a little while, but I feel like in the days after the election, I, I had the misconception that there might be a, a period, not of calm as though we were going into a truce and everything would be fine, but just that they, were, they would have to catch their breath after shouting for months and months about how Trump was uh, a, gosh, pick, take your pick, a racist, uh, a xenophobe, uh, hated Muslims, a sexist, uh, a sexual assault sort of maniac, all of that stuff. I thought maybe they would take a couple of weeks to figure out well, what the new line of attack would be or how to double down on the old, but at least there would be a breather. And there really hasn't been one. And now we've already seen what the main, you know, they tried the fake news stuff. Didn't really stick because most people know when something is fake, they can tell when a news story is fake. And those who can't don't care that the mainstream media is talking about fake news, right? So that didn't have the resonance that, that it, although it made, that made Democrats feel a little better about what had happened, right? They felt better about their candidate and everything because, well, you see, it's because Republicans are too stupid to know real news from fake news. That's why they voted for him. Or it was Comey's fault. Hillary Clinton herself, um, whom some people like to pretend has sort of gone off into the sunset post-presidential election with grace and dignity. I think she got on a phone call a day or two after the election and said, yeah, it's Comey's fault. It's because of what Comey did or what Comey said. And I have to look at this and say to myself, um, okay, I don't think that has much by way of dignity or, or, or grace, but that's my opinion. Comey, did he impact the election? Did he not? I, well, if he hadn't told us about what was going on, if he hadn't discussed the fact that they were looking at the emails again, one would think that there would be consequences the other way, that it would seem as though he was trying... Uh, he was trying his level best to throw the whole thing for Hillary by suppressing evidence. 
But now they've really sunk their teeth into what the main effort is going to be. And that is that Russia didn't just interfere in the election or and, and I want to talk about this whole interference concept, by the way, too. It's very interesting because the way they report on it. Well, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Not just that Russia interfered, but that Russia interfered specifically to help Trump win. Now, I do believe Russia interfered, and I'm just basing it on the reports, and I, I don't have access on the inside anymore, right? So I see what you see, but and I have some friends still on the inside. I, but nonetheless, I think that Russia, most likely the Russian government, allowed or told, or I should say, told some hackers and they knew that they'd have safe harbor in Russia, right? If you're going to hack, you want to be in a country that's never going to hand you over. Uh, this is very, that's, very, that's step one. Well, step one, I guess, is knowing how to hack. But step two is you want to be in a country that's not, not going to extradite you and it's going to kind of laugh at the request. So the Russian government clearly uh, would qualify as such. And it seems like they allowed this hacking to go on and, and some level of the Russian government, perhaps even all the way up to Putin himself, wanted to send a message. And the message was something along the lines of America's democracy is messy and problematic and they want to pretend that they're the Boy Scouts of the world, but they, they've got their own cronyism and corruption and everything else. I can buy all of that. Did Putin... Months before the votes were even cast, try to tip the scales in favor of Trump because he likes Trump so much or just because he doesn't like Hillary. I'm not as sure on that. That seems to me to be first of all, everyone thought Hillary was going to win so that Trump would or rather that Putin would actively antagonize one candidate over the other seems to jump over the fact to jump over the thought that everybody assumed in this country that Hillary was going to win everybody. Okay, so unless you think Putin has some crystal ball, he's uh, effectively antagonizing the future president of the United States as part of some grudge. Now, is he willing to do that? Maybe he's willing to do that. I'm not saying he can't, but just let's look at all the different layers here. This is a very nuanced, complicated issue. It's being reported as this. Everybody knows Russia was behind the hacking and pretty much everybody knows that they wanted Trump to win. And Trump says that it's all a lie. The everybody knows Russia wanted Trump to win. That's not as clear. The implications, by the way, of what this would mean, what we would do in response to it. And oh, by the way, what does it say about the Democrats that by getting access to the DNC's unclassified email system, it could turn the whole election? I mean, there, there is something fascinating here about how what the Russians told us, or rather what the Russians allowed or brought out into the public, was just a deeper insight into the Democratic Party. It wasn't disinformation. And I guess now the Democrats finally admit this. You will recall for a while they were pretending that it wasn't clear if the emails were real or fake. But it wasn't a disinformation campaign. It was an information campaign. The things that we found out about how The DNC was stacked in favor of Hillary uh, and the media collusion that occurred, the deeply embarrassing, I would think, for some networks, media collusion that occurred between uh, apparent talking heads or so-called talking heads and actual party apparatchiks, people that are directly attached to the Democratic Party uh, who are working actively for their candidate. Uh, we, We saw things that we would not have otherwise We had a fuller picture of who the Democrats were if we were even paying attention, which, by the way, this is the whole 
a, a whole other layer of this, and that is, did it matter? Did it matter? We can never really know, but we can certainly talk about it. And I can promise you this. We're going to have to talk about it because the Democrats have now already set the narrative. It, it doesn't matter what comes out of some Congress. The whole, oh, we need more investigations. We need more investigations. It doesn't matter. The narrative has already been set. You see, they see this as their sort of version of because they thought Benghazi was just a right wing conspiracy where nothing. And now keep in mind, of course, four people died. The U.S. ambassador, three Americans who were serving their country alongside him. Uh, but they thought that Benghazi, you know, that the standard party line on the left was Benghazi was a, an endless witch hunt to undermine uh, Hillary Clinton specifically and the Obama administration more generally. They think with this issue that they have, in fact, come up with their own version of the sort of gift that keeps on giving the political investigation that will never stop and that you can always use to undermine your opponent. Right. That that's what this is all really about. That's what the situation is here, which is why the narrative, by the way, is based on unnamed sources from within the CIA who are speaking out about this. That is quite a black eye to give the incoming administration run off the bat, isn't it? I also love this version, by the way, of events. Donald Trump is being so mean to the CIA by saying that they got WMD wrong. First of all, I was in the Iraq office of CIA after the whole WMD thing, but I can tell you, yeah, we did get it wrong. And <laughs> as, as though you didn't already know that. I know some of you are going to email me and say there were, you know, that they did find chemical weapons. I'm aware of that, too. But the proposals that were made about the uh, the extent of the of the weapons, just go back and look at Colin Powell and the testimony. And OK, so there, there were mistakes. There were mistakes made. Uh, uh, but that Trump would respond in that way. I, I wish, who am I to tell Trump what to do when it comes to dealing with the media, right? He just beat the whole thing, and he's president, and I, I think he, I think I think we're at a point now where we should recognize he, he does, he is kind of crazy like a fox. He does know what he's doing with a lot of this stuff. Um, that he would respond to the CIA in a dismissive manner, or that he would respond to this. Remember, it's not the CIA, it's a Washington Post report based on unnamed sources purportedly from within the CIA, which is one part of the broader intelligence community. And by the way, within the intelligence community, the FBI has already said they're not as sure about the motivations behind a Russian instigated hacking. But that's sort of brushed over in the reporting of this. Now, the, the coverage of this is breathless because they need to create the perception. The media wants to create the perception right away that Russia and and they can it, it's all about how they frame the discussion it's all about how they present the information right they'll they'll keep it just within the boundaries of accuracy but they'll do it in a way that there's a lot of uh sort of persuasion a lot of subtlety intended to incline one to believe a certain certain end uh, of all of this certain outcome from all of this and what they want everyone to think is Russia, essentially Putin had hackers break into the DNC. And therefore, by the way, that probably gave Trump the election. So Trump is not legitimate. Now, keep in mind, there have been some I saw from over the weekend, somebody make a call on, I believe it was on CNN, for we have to have a new election. I mean, that's how hyperbolic some people are getting on this thing, right? That's how exaggerated this issue has become. 
Um, you know, there's the what do we there are sort of two. And I, I know I'm going at this and there's a, a lot sort of all colliding together. And I'm trying to keep it as straight line as I can as we work through all this. But there are two different questions you have to ask about the on the sort of so what scale or so what now is a better way to put it. So what now if Russia did intervene and it was to help Trump, is that Trump's fault? Do we then give a hacker's veto to any country anywhere in the world? What if in the next election, Kim Jong-un decides that he wants to help the Democrat candidate win because Democrat candidates obviously probably most likely going to be weaker on dealing with North Korea and then the Democrat wins? Does that invalidate that election? Is, is that where we're going now? Are, are we really going to pretend that the American people aren't just allowed to have their judgment on this issue based on all the facts? There's a lot of lies and a lot of half truth and mistruth out there. And, you know, I think a part of this. And this is going to really upset some people. But a part of all of this is, you know, yeah, Russia, Russia played dirty. And it may have helped Trump a little bit. Sure. But you know who else played dirty? About 80 to 90 percent of the media. And they did it for Hillary. So I think a lot of Americans look at this and say to themselves, OK, we don't want Russia interfering in our elections. But let's not pretend that we're all sitting around like a bunch of, uh, you know, blameless school children and, and, and no one ever lies and no one ever does anything wrong and no one's trying to sway the election one way or the other did we ever find out by the way how trump's tax returns got leaked to the new york times or at least their first few pages i love that theory that yeah it was marla maples marla maples who is probably still getting very large sums of money from donald trump in the divorce settlement and got a huge chunk in the first place yeah she really wants to pick a fight with the next president i mean this, the people were saying this to me like they had you know like they were inspector gadget or something and they had solved the case it was marla maples like yeah sure no somebody along the way whether it was somebody who was preparing the tax return or somebody who Worked in the IRS, perhaps. The IRS, they're a politicized body. By the way, you'll notice that no one on the Democrat side thought that we should have a new election in 2012 when it was admitted, admitted by the federal government that the IRS was targeting people for their political affiliation systematically in a widespread fashion across the country hundreds of times. No, no, no one said there should be a new election. Remember Barack Obama won that re-election. No one, no one said, oh, well, I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but the media certainly wasn't clamoring for. A, and that was our own government using real force and real, uh, real action to not try to sway people one way or the other, but to, but, but to intimidate them, to actively squelch the Tea Party movement, to crush it. That's what the IRS was trying to do. And this is this is fact. It's not a theory. It's not a conspiracy. The IRS has said this, right? We've had the hearings about it. Okay. So we're not going to have a new election based on that. But now people are calling for a new election because we saw some of some Podesta emails and we saw that some Democrats act like punks and that they're hypocrites. And we already basically knew all this stuff. But everyone's acting like this is a matter of this is a matter of national security. Okay, I want to ask that question, too. What do we do about it? You want to? You want to start a war with, we're going to go to war with Russia over, this is the, by the way, the game the Democrats always play. Oh, you want to start a war with somebody over this? Well, let's put, let's pose this one back to them. We've already put sanctions on Russia for what it's done in Ukraine. We've already done all the sort of diplomatic wrangling we can to push back against them using the EU as much as possible to help us. But the EU has got its own interest there. What are we really going to people say this is about the integrity of the next election 
okay, we're going to tell Russia not to hack it. We're going to tell Russia not to hack unclassified emails again and ask them really nicely or really meanly. But beyond that, not much we're going to do, folks. So those who are telling you that this is about the integrity of our elections, if Congress wants to investigate more, sure, fine, go ahead. Just understand that the purpose of the investigation really is not, at least for a majority of the people who are going to be involved in it, or close to a majority or whatever, a lot of the Democrats involved in it, is not about, oh gosh, because we already know, right? I thought we knew what happened. Russia hacked, spread the emails, that's what happened. So now we're going to find out if the intention was to help Trump. Okay, we can look into that. The purpose is not about securing future elections and the integrity of our electoral system. The purpose of this is to undermine the next president of the United States, who happens to be a Republican. Not just to undermine him, to say he is, in fact, a usurper, that he cheated, that he's not really the president. That's what they are trying to say. We need to understand it in those terms, but we'll work through more of this, more of the details. I've got a lot more to talk to you about here. 888-900-3393 on the phones. Team Buck, strap in. We've got a lot to come. Be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Sponsor this half hour is SoundsorShop.com. Team SoundsorShop offers the best expi- uh, pardon me, the best buying experience, period. When it comes to getting a silencer for your firearm, they have a friendly and knowledgeable staff. They're always available to help or answer any questions. And when it comes to doing the paperwork right for your silencer, you can trust silencershop.com. They submitted more than 60,000 forms to the ATF back in 2015. They have the best prices along with the best purchase, uh, with the best service. So when you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Silencer is a must-have accessory for your firearm. It makes shooting more enjoyable by reducing the blast to a much more comfortable level. And a silencer in your firearm offers many advantages, such as better accuracy and reduced recoil. So you should really check it out, everybody. Go to silencershop.com. That is silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. I want to know what you think about the Trump-Russia hack email situation. Definitely uh, definitely worth a chat about that. 888 3393. And uh, here we have um, Reed saying, it was, was the CNN, Harry Reed on his way out. You know, Harry Reed just, just sort of lighting some fires. He's a really, really responsible public servant, this guy, a really great individual. You know, just, just lighting some brush fires on the way out just because, you know, why not? You know, let's just see, let's just see some stuff burn. Um, he said that Democrats, quote, would have won the majority in the Senate and would have won the presidency, but for Comey. Oh, it's all Comey's fault. You know, I, I can't understand. 
were the emails a big deal or not? Because they kept telling us the emails were no big deal. Everything Hillary did was fine. So why would Comey saying, yeah, we're still looking at the emails be a problem? Right? She had already been cleared of, of criminal wrongdoing. That's what they told us. So Comey said we're looking at some emails. And by the way, he came back and said there's nothing before the election. So he said, you know, basically false alarm. Or not false alarm, but, you know, no harm, no foul on this stuff. We're all supposed to just freak out. Oh, I got Comey with the emails. Oh, what are you going to do? I, I, am, I am actually taken aback. A word that we borrow from nautical terminology, by the way. I am taken aback by how much how much the Democrats are a bunch of just unethical babies. You know, Trump won. Get over it. You know, it's like that guy says in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. It's like the Sopranos. It's over. Get a new show. Back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. All right, team, we're talking about Russia and hacking and the CIA. Oh, my. Let's do some spy time. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is spy time. And oh, you know what time it is. John Schindler joins us now. He's a national security columnist for the New York Observer, formerly of the National Security Agency, also known as No Such Agency, the NSA. What is up, John? Good to have you. Well, it's an exciting time, isn't it? It is. Interesting time to be a former (laughs) IC guy. Probably even as interesting to be inside as this whole kerfuffle plays out. Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) <laughs> Observer.com piece right now that John has. Trump declares war on the intelligence community. All right. So I tried to walk piece by piece, and I ended up, you know, like a drunk guy picking a fight with eight people at once in a bar because there's so much going on here. You know, there's just a lot. You got a lot to handle. You got a lot of dudes coming at you with this yeah, one. Absolutely. But let's, yeah. let's go through this piece by piece. Okay. Russia was involved in hacking the DNC. There's that. There's no question. I don't question that. You don't question that. I don't think no, any Republican any, of good faith question. questions that, right? Correct. Okay, so we know that the issue then comes to or comes down to the most recent, uh, really most recent news story, which was the Washington Post reporting that the CIA assesses with a, quote, consensus, according to one official, that the Kremlin specifically tried to help Trump. Now, that may be true, and it wouldn't surprise me if it were true. But I want you to walk us through the first of all, is this kind of irregular in your opinion? Because, you know, having a leak that undermines the incoming president. I agree with your piece, John, that it's not a good idea for the president to smack down the entirety of the IC based on one leak, the Washington Post. But also the post leak isn't some this isn't a low level. This is somebody I think probably up at the top. And this was political. Sure. Of course. Well, look, I mean, you, you know as well as I do that the, you know, the Washington Post in particular being our capital's paper of record 
has a cozy relationship with our intelligence agencies, especially the CIA. There's one famous columnist uh, there I won't name who can be considered almost a mouthpiece of uh, the seventh floor. There's the top floor of the CIA. Um, sure, it's political, but everything's political. I mean, look, the IC leaked a lot of stuff that really badly hurt Hillary, and I broke a lot of these those stories over the last years. I mean, this, this is how the game is played. Uh, and look, you, you don't attack the IC and basically make fun of them as Trump has done without expecting some kind of pushback that's incredibly naive. And while there is some debate about what Russia's exact intent was with hacking emails, giving them to WikiLeaks to hurt Hillary, you know, on the one side, there's the they desperately wanted to elect Trump. On the other side, there's the they're just trying to create chaos and pain in the United States, which is their number one enemy. Um, either way, what was done is established. It's not up for debate anymore. So I think it's a bit of a tangent to suggest oh, the intelligence community isn't sure about what happened. No, they're sure about what happened. It's the motivation that's hard to know. But the motivation is less important than what actually did happen. Right. And so now let's go to the calls for you know further investigation. I mean, this is where I here, here's where I keep running into uh, a bit of frustration on this, John. And I've had to talk about this with some former CNN colleagues on air. Uh, there's this there's this pretense that, well, we have to get to the bottom of this because we have to if we investigate this, we can stop the next one. Um, no, we're actually not going to stop John Podesta no, or anyone from the DNC from yeah. clicking on like a bit.ly link that says, hey, I need to reset your password. OK, so that's we're not really going to stop that from happening. Uh, yeah. And without getting into the politics of this, I think that this is now the people should understand this is the world that we live in. I mean, foreign governments are going to be able to play these kinds of games. And there's very there's very limited reprisal that we're or at least very limited public reprisal that we'll be willing to engage in in response. Well, I mean, it's so bad. The Obama administration, let's not talk reprisal. Obama administration didn't even want to combat the propaganda, this disinformation that the Russians have been aiming at us and much of the world in, you know, again, in firehose fashion since uh, 2014. Look, the facts are these. In response to the rising up of Russian disinformation of Cold War levels attacking the United States again, the State Department began a small initiative to counter the propaganda. There's debunk lies. Not engage in our own propaganda, but when the Russians say something crazy that's not true, we will respond. The Obama White House killed this tiny effort. They were so timid about the Russians, they didn't even want to play defense. So any playing of offense is a, is a pipe dream at this point. Right, so, so um, this – And look – Go ahead, go ahead, John. Yeah. No, I mean, the Democrats are – they're trying to cover that up. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it looks very bad for them that their own president kind of allowed this to happen. And, I mean, you, you, I won't engage in counterfactuals, but it seems pretty obvious to me that this is another case of Obama kowtowing the Russians, which only begot more Russian – bad behavior that blew up on Hillary this year. Those are simply facts. The Democrats want to get you off that and talk about connections between Trump and the Kremlin. And let me say, it's absolutely legitimate. We need to look into those. This needs to be addressed. But if the Democrats make this yet another partisan clown car, this, this will blow up in their face, too. We need an honest bipartisan investigation. Now, there are also Hillary Clinton ties, which I guess are, I mean, they are less important sure. now. But if we're going to sort of hold everybody to a standard of some objectivity and honesty, the Clintons were received. I mean, never mind the fact that Hillary's yep. State Department signed off on twenty percent of our uranium going to a Russian company's control. Uh, on top of that, I mean, what I think one of his biggest speeches was from essentially a Russian oligarch. Got like eight hundred grand to yes. Bill Clinton. Yes. I mean, so when people talk about connections. You know, Trump maybe owns some properties in Russia. The Russians were just straight up sending the Clintons checks in the mail. Right, and and I've I've reported on a lot of this. A lot of it's really shady, and it needs exposure. But the harsh reality is, 
Hillary Clinton's financial, it's all financial stuff with her. Uh, the, the Clinton Inc. financial ties to, the, to Russian interests, including Russian state interests. If she's running against anyone but Donald Trump, who's an overt admirer of Vladimir Putin, her ties would have been maybe a showstopper. But Trump is so overboard on this stuff, it makes Hillary's misconduct look kind of modest and normal when it's not. And, you know, as long as we're going to bring up the whole issue of Russian malign influence in propaganda and dirty financial dealings, I'm all in favor of an investigation. I'm not in favor of an investigation that becomes, you know, a partisan, you know, puppet show. Right, but do but you have I any faith you, whatsoever that that's not because let's let's just say it or I, I will say it and you can tell me if you agree or maybe this is too strong for you, you let me know. Uh, this is all about delegitimizing the Trump election before he even takes office. That's really what's motivating, actually, the, the, the frothy mouth Democrat fervor. I know they're saying it's because sure. they want to protect it. Yeah, but that's yeah. what this is. Sure it is. Uh, they, are, they are trying to delegitimize Trump before his inauguration. And inconveniently, some of what they say is absolutely true. <laughs> and, and yes, this is a delegitimization operation, which is precisely why Wise Republicans, who have many of them have been very uncomfortable with Trump's closeness with the Kremlin from day one, need to get on board here and keep this the focus where it needs to be, which is on counterintelligence and security, not partisan politics. If the Democrats want to be act like fools, let them. They will self-discredit. But the problem is, and here's the kind of you're saying when McCain got out in front of this on the weekend, saying, "No, no, we have to investigate this." That is cover for other Republicans to now come out, and they're starting to come out and say, "You know what?" This has reached a point we can't let this go on. And let's be honest, this is Trump's fault. Okay, this is Trump. He had the opportunity when the Washington Post reported the CIA assessment at the end of last week. They could have calmed down. They could have said, hey, you know, we're going to cooperate with whatever needs to happen here. Uh, we're obviously opposed to foreign interference in our election. If there was any, we're not saying there was, but if there was, we're opposed to it. Did they do that? Of course not. It's Trump. So they double down, triple down, throw insults. At the, at the intelligence community, at anyone who, who opposes them. You know, Trump was basically making fun of the IC. Kellyanne Conway on the weekend was you know, basically mocking the IC. John Bolton, not the world's most level-headed guy, sort of hints that maybe it was really the Obama administration behind the hack of the he, DNC. He's about to be – he's likely to be a very senior White House official, is he not? Not, not after that. Oh, you don't think so? Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yes. Uh, well, he was slated allegedly to be the deputy secretary of state, the number two official at the State Department uh, after the since the uh, Trump transition has suggested that Rex Tillotson, the CEO of ExxonMobil, who also has a ton of Trump uh, a ton of Putin ties, will be the secretary of state. Bolton was slated to be his number two. When you go out there, and I mean, this was Alex Jones' tinfoil stuff. Let's make this very clear. He sort of slyly hinted that maybe it was all a false flag, the stealing of the emails, which is, I mean, this is one step removed from shape-shifting lizard people run the world in secret. I mean, this is this is nutty stuff. You can't um, disprove the shape-shifting lizard people, John. Let's just go on the well, record with that. Well, you know, this is a contested issue. I've always been in favor of, of the Bigfoot hypothesis, but I'll, I'll let you have the lizard people. But so now we've got the, the, the ties to Russia. Getting, I'll, I'll get us back on track now. Sorry about that. Uh, the ties to <laughs> Russia here. Um, people keep saying they're troubling. Well, what is what is Trump to do to make them not troubling? And and, and also well, I mean, that I think also leads us into the tillers, the possibility of Tillerson as secretary of state. It's hard to know when to take the media's outrage at a Trump cabinet pick seriously, because everything is an outrage. You know, Mitt Romney was an outrage. Everything is an outrage. Right. Right. Exactly. And this is the problem. And liberals have so, you know, made fun of the, the right wing, including incredibly nice guys like Mitt Romney for so long. 
you know, they didn't know how good they had it. And, and I agree with you, this is all politically motivated, but again, inconveniently, people like Mike Flynn and Rex Tillotson really do have ties to the Kremlin that are, you know, troubling for anyone who thinks that Russia is not our buddy. Uh, and, but, but like, what are know, Tillerson's well, troubling? Like, I mean, ties, yes, th- that's a matter of fact that you're stating, well, but troubling. That's an, that's an analytic assessment. Why is it troubling? No, What's troubling? I have no problem with the reality that the head of a, one of the world's biggest petroleum firms is cozy with the Kremlin in a business sense because Russia is one of the world's biggest producers of oil. We're talking beyond that. Uh, Tillerson has spent his, basically his whole career on, on the Russia account. He is personally friends with Vladimir Putin. He accepted a major Russian state decoration from them in 2013, which as of yesterday, Tillerson was still bragging about on his, uh, on his official bio on the ExxonMobil Internet page. Um, you know, friendship is one thing in a business sense. I don't care that Rex Tillerson is palsy-walsy with Vladimir Putin. I care about the fact that Donald Trump wants our country's dip, top diplomat to be pals with Vladimir Putin. Maybe. That I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but maybe. Yes. Right. Well, John McCain, who, let us not forget, in 2012 sank Obama's choice to be Secretary of State to replace Hillary Clinton, has it within his power to sink Tillotson, too. And I think he's indicating that that could well happen. I think Tillerson is kind of a uh, – you think he might be a, a sacrificial lamb in this? He, he offers up Tillerson, and then he can you know slide in. Going. What's up? Yeah, exactly. That may be how it's going because Trump is very foolish if he wants to give the Senate a chance to grill anyone about Kremlin ties because that's going to very quickly blow back on the president-elect. So they'd be very wise to throw Tillotson under the bus very quickly. Who do you think is the best pick? If we can just go to go to a happy place for a second, who should he pick for Secretary oh, of State? That's been talking. I was great with uh, Mitt Romney. I mean, I was yeah, so was Romney I. But people yell at me for that. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's a smart guy. He understands how the world works. He's judicious. And he's a patriot. I mean, what more do you want? I mean, there, there was a rumor that uh, Admiral Jim Stavrius, retired admiral, head of the Fletcher School of Tufts, former NATO commander. I know him. He's a great guy. He'd be, he'd be a fantastic choice. He was supposedly in the runnings to be, to be Secretary of State. I'd be entirely in favor of that, too. But what's wrong with Mitt Romney? He's going to get easily confirmed. Everyone basically likes him. No one thinks he's a nut. He knows how to run big organizations. I was just the State Department uh, you know, recently, and no one was up in arms about a possibility of Romney secretaryship. What's what's wrong with Mitt? Hey, minute or quitted is what I always say. Uh, <laughs> as to uh, as to where we go from here, though, uh, one more for you. Then we got to go to got to go to break, John. Uh, so we can never prove that Russia did or did not influence the election. Ultimately, right? Isn't that a part of this as well? Right. That they'll look into all the information, they'll get everything they can, but you can't say, well, the election would have been different had we not known X. We don't know. That's right. And these are all counterfactuals that will never be resolved. All that we can say for sure is that Russian intelligence, using their well-honed playbook going way, way back to KGB times, uh, you know, used their standard tricks to influence American politics this year. To what end is not exactly clear, but it clearly had some influence. Did it elect Donald Trump? I, I think that's an overstatement. It certainly hurt Hillary Clinton. Um, but you know, we, we, sh- we shouldn't allow foreign powers, especially ones that hate us and have several thousand nuclear weapons pointed at us, do this. And that's the point. And we need to learn from this and get serious about counterintelligence with the proviso that it was the Obama administration's utter neglect of counterintelligence. Never our strong point, but it fell off the cliff when Obama went to the White House, was ultimately what set the stage for the debacle of 2016 that let the Kremlin and Putin play their little little spy games with us and really mess with our heads. John Schindler's latest is up on Observer.com now. Trump declares war on the intelligence community. John Schindler, great to have you, sir. Thanks for calling in. As always, my friend. Ciao. Team, we'll be right back. 
You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. to the Buck Sexton Show, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Team lines are open, 888-900-3393. Darby in Dallas, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Good morning, my friend. Just Good morning. To, What's up, uh, buddy? Two things, actually. Uh, I think you're spot on with the Harry Reid uh, analysis. It, it, for months, we were told that Hillary's emails were not a big deal, and all of a sudden, it's Comey. It's now it's Comey's fault. But I also wanted to point out, and I'm certain that you've said this before, but isn't it interesting that if the Democratic National Convention had not been trading these emails back and forth, that there would not be uh, a Russian interference to speak of? Of course, nobody's going to bring that out and say that maybe the DNC should not have been saying the things that they were saying and throwing the uh, the primaries towards uh, towards uh, Hillary Clinton. But of course, the liberal media is not going to not going to tell us about that. Yeah, this is what's so fascinating. Everyone acts like the Russians hacked into voting machines or something. All they did was let us right. know what the Democrats actually say in private. Okay, right. I mean, for all we know, they're using for all we know they're using Yahoo. I mean, it's not even it's not like it's a State Department email that they hacked or some government agency that they hacked. It's it's their their emails. They go back and forth to each other. It's ludicrous. Right. I mean, let's say, if they had exposed emails that showed that Hillary actively knew that she was trafficking classified information, if they had exposed that, which would mean that it was evidence of a federal crime. Would we be yelling about how the Russians did the hack, or would we be saying, "Hmm, I think Hillary needs to go to prison"? <laughs> I mean, you know, this is that we have to take, take these issues seriously. There's a lot going on here. Uh, but Darby and Dallas Shields, hi, my man. Great to hear from you as always. I appreciate you hanging with me in the hut. Um, team, hour two coming up, which means lots more stuff, lots more to discuss. Oh me, oh my, we got a lot to go to here, a lot to go through. I mean, eight 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 nine hundred three three nine three. We're going to continue on Kremlin and hacks and CIA. Oh, my. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We are joined by our friend Sean Davis. He is the co-founder of the Federalist. He's a fascinating piece up on thefederalist.com. No, Senate Democrats can't use the nuclear option to confer Merrick Garland. Sean, great to have you. Thank you for having me, Buck. It's always fun. Ah, okay, Sean. Wait, you're going to have to walk us through this one. There's a theory out there that's gotten some traction in at least the fever swamps of the left-wing Internet that the Democrats, after losing this election and still not having the votes, can somehow slam in a Supreme Court justice before Trump takes office. Please tell us how this is supposed to go. Okay, so the theory here is that since every two years only a third of the Senate is elected, that at a magical point in time between the end of a previous Congress and the beginning of a new one, 
there are only 66 or 67 senators, that those uh, newly elected senators in, well, in the 2016 election, for example, don't become senators until uh, after a, a point in time when Joe Biden, the president of the Senate, and the rest of the Senate agree to acknowledge them. And so with this in mind, the progressive fever dream to install Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court is that uh, once you have only those 66 senators in office, the ones who weren't elected or reelected in 2016, a majority of them are Democrats. So the Democrats could just seize the floor and they could uh, use some previous precedents to make everything a majority vote. And then at that point, 34 Democrats out of 66 senators would be able to confirm Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, and there's nothing Republicans can do about it. Uh but fortunately, this is crazy, right, Sean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tell me that. Tell me that the goldfish crazy. are not going with them. No, no, it's completely crazy, and it's it's crazy for this um, document that people used to be familiar about that I refer to as the Constitution. Now, the Constitution oh, you silly man! Said, I know. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm so strange. You're clinging, you're clinging to the, the pa- clinging to vestiges of the past, Sean. Go ahead. I know, clinging to my dead documents. Anyhow, the, uh, the Constitution says that uh, a Congress ends precisely at noon on January 3rd, and a new Congress begins um, immediately after the previous Congress uh, uh, congressional term expires. So there's no magical gap in time here where a third of the Senate isn't really part of the Senate. That's the first one. The second one is that the 17th uh, Amendment states that every state has two senators. It doesn't say that every state has two senators except for this arbitrary indefinite amount of time between Congresses when anyone could basically commandeer the Senate to do whatever they wanted for an indefinite amount of time. That, that's not in the 17th Amendment. So, I mean, if you just look at the Constitution, it becomes clear that an individual becomes a senator uh, based on the votes of his electorate and the authority granted to him or her by the U.S. Constitution. Nowhere does it say that Joe Biden and a bunch of other Democrats have to acknowledge the fact that these people are senators before they become senators. The, the whole plan is just the most absurd example of progressive denial uh, about what happened in the election that I think I've ever seen. It's remarkable. Uh, yes, that's what I wanted to, wanted to ask you about next. It, it seems to me to be uh, different this time around, the degree to which the left is willing to essentially say anything just short of openly advocating like violence uh, in order to keep Trump from being the president. Should the Electoral College just decide to forget about, you know, their obligations and what the people did and just, you know, do their own thing? Oh, yeah, they want that to happen now. Should the popular vote matter, even though, as anybody can explain, and I, I don't know if we've discussed, I feel like, Sean, we might have talked about it. You certainly tweeted about it. If, the elect- if it was all about massing votes, well, then the Republicans would spend a lot more time in New York and California than they do. Right. I mean, this is there's a- and also voters in those states would have different ideas about whether their vote counted or not. I mean, it's just it's a different race. Right. It's it's like saying, you know, are you trying to get to 21 first or is this a timed event? Well, it's one or the other. It can't be both. And I just feel like there is nothing that they are unwilling to trot out there and say in this continuing effort to try to make it seem like. Trump didn't win. I mean, he won. Whether you love him or hate him, he won. It's fascinating. Basically, everything they screamed that Trump would do before the election, he's going to mount a palace coup. He's not going to recognize the legitimacy of the election. He's going to try and steal it through voter suppression. Everything they accused Trump of doing 
when they thought Hillary was going to win is what they are doing right now. Every single thing. So they, they can't just acknowledge that, you know what, she lost fair and square. She lost under the established rules that everyone knew about. And she lost because in the people, uh, the people in the states uh, whose electoral votes added up to 270 just didn't like her that much. No, it's fake news. Or maybe it's Russia. Or maybe it's Comey. Or, or maybe it was racism. No, wait, maybe it was sexism. These people are in the midst of a collective mental breakdown, and uh, we're all getting a chance to see it uh, happen in real time. Oh, is, is the Electoral College thing still a lot? Are they still talking about that one? Oh, yeah, they're still talking about it. And, you know, people are still talking about how fire can't melt steel. I mean, these people have become completely unhinged, deranged conspiracy theorists of the highest order. After complaining that Trump was going to mount a palace coup and then saying after uh, he had appointed some retired generals uh, to serve in government that maybe he was working on a military coup, now they are working on their own literal coup of the Electoral College using leaked intelligence, um, the contents of which nobody has actually seen. Oh yeah, uh, but that's another. That's another. We talked about this in the last hour. I keep bringing this up. People say, "Well, Trump has been mean to the intelligence community, uh, senior officials," and that's the only. Those are the only people I know that no one's risking their career and possibly their clearance and more by going to the Washington Post, who has access to the Russia investigation, uh, who's not covered from the very top, and I mean covered by like the White House if need be. There's no way that they would be going to the Washington Post and sharing this information. And it's all meant to kneecap the Trump administration, very obviously. Oh, look, it, it, it's apparent reading between the lines of the Washington Post story that the source for everything they're saying is either a Democrat staffer or a Democrat senator who sat in on this briefing. It, it is patently obvious. And then there's this characterization that the CIA, the intelligence community, has officially determined that is straight-up nonsense. Until they throw it in a press release and declassify it and send it to the whole world, the CIA or the intelligence community as an institution hasn't officially decided a single darn thing. Yeah, and this is what the media gets so upset. They keep saying, well, you do not believe Russia hacked? I said, no, I believe Russia hacked, but the why they hacked and the extent of the hacking and whether it had an impact, those are all open questions still. Those are not settled issues at all, and they like to pretend like they are. Well, and there's, there's another fascinating undercurrent here, which is the extent to which progressives really don't – they can't see the forest from the trees. So they're looking at all this, and they think that everything that happened with WikiLeaks um, and with hacking and all that and about seeing if an old man who ran Hillary's campaign could get fished with the dumbest fishing expedition ever, they somehow think it was all about Trump. This was all done about Trump. It was all done about the 2016 election. And I'm sorry, if you think that, you've lost the plot. If you look at the history of direct, uh, directed measures or active measures games played by um, our geopolitical foes, they don't get involved in stupid little nitty-gritty stuff like that. What Russia is engaged in right now is swaying a large part of the American population um, to basically not buying the legitimacy of their own institutions. It's about creating a vehicle for Russian propaganda um, that Russia can activate in the future. 2016 was basically a test run for a very, very long-term um, propaganda and destabilization campaign by Russia. The notion that all they cared about was getting Trump elected is just stupid on stilts. Yeah, I also have to say that the the, the Hillary Clinton connections uh, to the to Russia, or really the Clinton Foundation connections to Russia, 
are every are, are very troubling. Everyone likes to use the word they're troubling, you know. Uh, you know, Bill Clinton was getting like eight hundred thousand dollar checks from Russians with Russian interests in America, uh, and nobody seemed to have a big. You know, that was not a big deal when Hillary was running at all. And yet, and yet here we are, and it really just boils down to there. There, there is a the not my president protesters that I saw on the street. That sentiment is actually shared in the newsrooms and at some of the sort of top left opinion journals and you know media outlets across the country. He's not their president. That's oh, it's not that he's a bad president. Absolutely. He's not their president. Yep, and, and you know, by all means, let's investigate pernicious Russian influence in American uh, politics. Uh, but if we're going to do that, you're not getting away with starting that in about, oh, September of 2016. If we're going to look into Russian meddling in American governance, you better believe we are going to look at the sale to a Russian company uh, that gave that country 20% of the world's uranium reserves. We're going to look at who the person who ran that company was connected to. We're going to look at the fact uh, that the Clintons got millions from that company's principal, and we're going to look at the fact that Bill Clinton accepted half a million dollars for a speech in front of a uh, a Russian investment bank with uh, deep ties to the Kremlin. We're going to talk about all the appearances uh, Clinton made as Clinton Foundation head with Vladimir Putin. We're going to talk about all of that. And if liberals think they're going to get out of this by only talking about WikiLeaks and only starting in fall of 2016, they're nuts. And by the way, not for nothing, two things that I think also get totally lost in all this. One, the WikiLeaks stuff, I guess the Democrats now admit, but we all knew, it's all true. So the information that people were if, – if you were changing your mind based on what the uh, Russian you know, document dump via WikiLeaks was, well, you're basing it on what is reality, which is the Democrats play dirty and are uh, essentially pr- you know, put one face out to the public when the reality, what they're doing behind the scenes is something else. Um, and I also think a very small percentage of people even really cared about these things. You know, in some ways, I actually sympathize um, with the Clinton people when it came to the WikiLeaks stuff. You can make anyone look like a monster by uh, selectively going through their email, their phone conversations. I mean, that was absolutely dirty pool. Um, Even if it was reality, I don't think it was fair, but it happened. But let's look at something similar. The New York Times published Donald Trump's leaked tax returns. Okay, that's highly illegal. Uh, you're not allowed to go and leak somebody's highly confidential personal tax information. Yet the New York Times did it, and liberal reporters and progressive activists had field days with it. Gone was their concern uh, about the illegal source of the information. So the way I look at it, at it is, if you better be consistent. If you think uh, leaked, uh, illegally leaked or hacked information is bad, then all of it has to be bad. You don't get to play games and say, oh, oh no, no, that stuff that I wanted out there was different but that stuff that i didn't want out there that doesn't count let's talk about westworld for a second because just uh, we got a couple minutes here that i, I wanted to cover this because I, I agree with, with you in that it's jj abrams show i think that guy is wildly overrated by the way or at least the projects he's involved in a lot of them are wildly overrated uh lost at the top of my list there you say westworld is lost with is lost with robots uh why do you why do you make that case i mean i would make the same case oh, i just man, want to hear your was, version that, that was quite a transition there um, so I, I really enjoyed the, um, like the concept behind Westworld. You have these sentient robots. What are they going to do? The problem is that like, pretty much everything happened in the show was totally predictable. And you ended up with um, a scenario in there where no matter what happened, uh, the show's writers could always basically revise it by saying, oh, that thing you thought that happened, that was actually a robot. Uh, we, we tricked you. You thought it was a human, but it was a robot. Gotcha. 
Or if a robot did something and you thought, oh, no, the robot's sentient, um, what, what kind of implications does that have in the real world? They could come back and say, ah, trick you. No, it was programmed to do that. It wasn't sentient at all. So I have used it as, as just a bunch of um, kind of cheap tricks used to manipulate the audience as opposed to uh, kind of an engaging story that um, was honest on its own terms. I also have to say, I think that artificial intelligence movies in general – when you look back and re- they're just for some reason they can't get this genre they just stink ai was was trash piled on top of trash i mean lots of these movies about how you know the sort of the the, the singularity or you know digital consciousness or rather artificial consciousness coming real i mean i feel like the best one is terminator with skynet <laughs> there's been like nothing good <laughs> since i liked i robot i thought that one was pretty oh, good oh i actually didn't see that one so i can't i can't comment but ai i should have walked out on Oh, yeah, I heard that was terrible. I never saw it. Uh, but you know, I think you can make AI interesting. Like, Michael Crichton kind of does that. So Westworld was based on an original screenplay of his. But he likes to take all this technology stuff and turn it into an exploration of human nature, which to me is really interesting. It's not all that interesting when it becomes kind of a uh, mystery reveal addiction where the writers kind of get off on just tricking you. Haha, we got you. You thought it was human, which is how I viewed Westworld after that. Yeah, I agree. I, I dis- it disappointed me. I got I to gotta also say, um, what, this is my problem with Pirates in the Caribbean as well, when they're at least, when they were ghosts and they're all sword fighting. I'm like, well, if you can't be killed, a sword fight is a pretty boring exercise. <laughs> and the same thing in Westworld. <laughs> we're watching all these robots kill each other that can be repaired. And so how is there any drama? I mean, I I know in the end, people, ooh, spoiler, people get killed too. But for like the first eight episodes, it's robots killing robots. I was like, who cares? It's like watching yeah, Rock'em Sock'em robots. One of the things I wrote about is like you, you have to have real stakes, and robots dying aren't real stakes. And it, you can get people to suspend disbelief in your main concept, but they're not going to suspend disbelief if you're constantly breaking your own rules. Like you have to stay true to the universe you've created. You can't just go willy-nilly changing stuff around and expect people to stay invested. Totally agree. I say that a lot to Sean Davis. All right, Sean Davis is the co-founder of The Federalist. Follow him uh, at SeanMDAV on Twitter and uh, go to thefederalist.com to read his writing. Sean, great to have you, sir. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Take care. Uh, team, we'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. Team Beats, our nutrition goldmine. Our sponsor this half hour is Super Beats. Beets are rich in vitamins, minerals, electrolytes, and dietary nitrates. And Super Beats is the easiest way to get these, these natural dietary nitrates to specifically help with circulation. I know when I take Super Beats, I love that I'm doing something healthy for my heart, my circulation, my blood pressure, and I have amazing all-day energy and stamina. I feel confident offering this to you because I love the boost of energy I get within 20 minutes of taking Super Beats. And, you know, by the way, it doesn't have any sugary taste of energy energy drinks, and it doesn't make me crash because Super Beats are all natural. 
So please call 800-311-4367 or go to teambuckbeats.com and get a 30-day supply free. It comes with your first order and is backed by a money-back guarantee. Also receive a free book, Beat the Odds, and free shipping on your entire order. You'll love the results you feel with your first free canister guaranteed or your money back. 800-311-4367, teambuckbeats.com, 800-311-4367, or teambuckbeats.com. Super beats, super beats, the super beaty. They should have me do a uh, a jingle. Obviously, forget this. Just like radio voiceover stuff, I can I can sing, I can dance, I got I got many skills, team, many skills. Uh, I could definitely write a super beats jingle. It'd be awesome, awesome. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about the uh, Russia WikiLeaks situation. This is uh, I'm expecting that I'm gonna get a, get a chance to. Uh, fight with some some leftists on this so keep an eye on the facebook and on the twitter um in fact i think i'll be probably right around three uh i'll be on cnn discussing this issue and i'm sure that's going to be lively are you saying russia didn't hack i'm not saying russia didn't hack i'm just saying that the investigation isn't going to show anything we don't already know most likely and you're getting ahead of the facts and this is all really just to undermine trump and we're making a mountain out of a molehill because this didn't change the election are you saying you're stupid? Are you on Putin's payroll, man? I kind of wish I was on Putin's payroll. That guy's got bank. I'm just kidding. He's a brutal thug, but you know he does have bank. The guy's got cash. Uh, but yeah, I'm not on Putin's payroll. Um, I suppose if you work technically for RT, which I will say, for those who have raised questions about those who have done RT in the past, I will say that uh, I refused to do RT even when I was just a young cub buck, a, a little baby buck, no antlers doing my media, you know, just getting going, you know, wearing a lot of uh, sort of darker colors because, you know, they kind of told me that I was like CIA and edgy. And I, and I really was just like, nah, man, I, I really I should just be wearing uh, khakis and boat shoes because like that's what I've been wearing since I was three. So why don't we just keep it real side part boat shoes, but no RT. See, that's how I keep it real. No Russia today. Not how I do things. Not how the Buckman rolls. So, um. I'm going to be getting into some other topics with you here shortly, I promise. Uh, 888-900-3393 on the phones. And we're going to be having a discussion about things that are happening in the world. Uh, also, please, facebook.com, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And uh, check it out on Twitter, too, at Buck Sexton. I'll be posting various opportunities for me to explain myself on the television coming up here today and maybe tomorrow, too. Team Buck, back in just a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. I promise you that it would be quite a freestyle today on the show. We are a day late, but we will not miss out on our celebration of International Sloth Day, which was yesterday. To tell us about these furry friends, the sloths, we're joined by Becky Cliff. She is a British zoologist working at the Sloth Sanctuary of Costa Rica, calling in from Central America. Becky, thank you so much for giving us a ring. Hi, Bert. No problem. So, so, so yesterday was International Sloth Day. My little sister says that her her dream pet, if she could have anything as a pet, 
would be a sloth. I think they are fascinating creatures. Tell us a bit about the sloths that you work with every day. So I worked with sloths in the wild um, for six years in Costa Rica, um, and they are amazing creatures. I mean, the babies are undeniably cute, and the adults are as weird as the babies are cute, you know? Um, I think they have this this laid-back lifestyle that we all probably envy a little bit, um, and they do it all with this permanent enigmatic smile. Um, but I, I track their movements um, and monitor their behaviors um, with little tracking devices, um, and that's where my research is at. Are they are they affectionate? Are they kind of like dogs? Did you get it? Can you get? Do they get attached? To, I mean, I know they're always attached to trees, but will they sort of sloth attached to you? And you know, this is, I'm just wondering what their what their temperament is like. Because, for example, friends of mine who have spent time in Australia and spent time at some of the sort of wildlife preserves there say that as cute as they look, koalas are not to be played with. Are sloths friendlier? So hand raised sloths that get rescued um, as orphans, they tend to be quite friendly because they've been raised by humans. So they will attach to you a bit like they'll attach to a tree. Um, but sloths in the wild, I mean, they're wild animals and they retain their, their natural instincts. So they can be um, quite aggressive, but that's just out of fear. Um, and they can be quite dangerous as well. So I'd never advise hugging a wild sloth at all. <laughs> now, they're dangerous because it's, they actually, as much as they look like they're all very chill and enjoying vacations, you know, hanging upside down, they've got some nasty claws, right? That's their main defense mechanism? They do. So there's two types of sloth, and they all have those big claws, um, which is actually their fingers. Um, they're not very sharp, but they can squeeze really, really strong. Um, but they also have big teeth. Um, and there's a type of sloth called the two-fingered sloth, which, I mean, they can look after themselves perfectly well. So they, they look after themselves. Aren't there also some, uh, there's like, an, they are their own ecosystem. Their fur is home to all kinds of critters, right? This is, I, was, I was reading about sloths last night. I found this fascinating. And there's just like algae that attaches to them and bugs will live on them and stuff. What, what's, what's that all about? Yeah, so each one of the soft hairs is actually sort of folded in hair and in half in its structure, and it has algae that grows down the root of that hair, and um, which turns them green um, and helps them camouflage. But also in their hair, they can have um, a type of sloth, a, a type of moth called a sloth moth, which is all, like a species of moth that's only ever found on a sloth. Um, and a single sloth can have up to 300 moths that live in its hair at once. And um, so they are like this whole little ecosystem. It's amazing, really. How long has Sloth International Sloth Appreciation Day been around, by the way? This just came up in our news feeds yesterday. So we said we have to have a sloth expert on. Is this a new thing? I mean, the sloth, most people just know it moves slowly, hence the word. <laughs> but that's, well, when, did the, when did the day of sloth appreciation come about? I should know the answer to that question. Um, and honestly, I only heard about International Sloth Day about five years ago. So I don't think it's been around that long. Um, but I think it's the best day of the year by far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would assume so. Uh, now, not some people will be eating lunch. We talked about this once before, but we'll have to just give everybody a, a trigger warning here that I'm going to ask the question. It's true that they have a very unique uh, GI system and expulsion, correct? They go once some, in a very rare while. Yeah, so, I mean, it's actually quite amazing. They do only go to the bathroom once a week, um, and when they do, they climb all the way down from the top of the tree, and they dig a little hole at the base of the tree with their tail, um, and they can lose up to a third of their body weight in one sitting. 
um, which is phenomenal. I mean, if you ever get the chance to watch a sloth go to the bathroom, um, you can see them oh visibly before your eyes. <laughs> wow. A sloth poop session. Interesting. Um, it's very, how did you get, if I'm asked, how did, it, how did you become uh, enamored with the sloth? I mean, how did that become your area, your sort of zoological area of expertise? You just, was it just their cute faces and smiles and, and demeanor? Or how, how did you find yourself becoming a, a sloth expert and one who works with them in the wild? Honestly, it was sort of an accident. Um, I got the chance to go to Costa Rica while I was studying for my undergraduate degree. Um, on like I was doing like a 12-month research placement, um, and I, I ended up in Costa Rica at this sloth sanctuary. Um, and then I really quickly discovered that nobody has ever actually researched them long-term in the wild because they are really difficult to study. Um, and then over Wait, why, the years, why are they difficult to study? If you find one, haven't doesn't doesn't he just chill out and you can watch him? Right, <laughs> he doesn't go anywhere. The problem is finding them. Um, they're, oh. they're main defense camouflage and if they can hide from a jaguar for example um then they can definitely hide from me and my binoculars and um, wow. so you don't see them um to do any observations and that i think that's why nobody knows anything about them um but there i, I quickly found myself accidentally becoming a world expert in sloth um which i love i I'm, i mean i've dedicated my life to them now so i <laughs> I, I think it was fate <laughs> uh, do are they sociable creatures i mean do they have, like, sloth parties up there in the canopy? You know what I'm saying? Is that something that happens? Or do they just, I assume, the, you know, the, the daddy sloth has to go hang out with the mommy sloth at some point. I mean, how does all that stuff work? I mean, not too much detail, but you know what I mean. So they're actually completely solitary. Um, but then when the females do want to find the males, they, um, they have a really weird way of attracting them. Um, so they actually scream. And it sounds a bit like a human woman screaming. It's like you wouldn't expect that noise to come out of a sloth, but it does. Um, attracts the, the gentlemen, and yeah, and that's when that's the only time they're social, really. Other than that, they they stay solitary. So they're totally solitary. And I assume the baby sloth attaches to the mama sloth and just hangs out like sloths do. <laughs> yeah, it hangs out um, for a whole year actually on her chest, um, and then slowly they start to separate from each other. Um, but yeah, it's a long time for any mammal to spend raising its baby. So, and, yeah. and they smell kind of funky, right? Have you have you gotten used to that smell? Or are you now like, ah, I like the smell of sloth? I'm really glad you asked that question because actually that's just that's a that's a myth. Um, they they don't produce any body odor because then predators would be able to smell them. So they actually smell just like a tree. It's amazing. Oh, that's yeah, because that's all over the internet. Is that they're supposed to be have this weird smell, but apparently not. See, this is where you get the world expert, everybody, to tell you about the sloth. So that's that's cool. Anything else? That, a, go ahead. I think there's a lot of myths about sloths, particularly being like smelly and lazy. Um, and they actually only sleep for eight hours a day, and I sleep for more than that usually. So I don't think they're lazy at all. Right, and they've sort of evolved. How many? Do we know how many beats a minute their hearts go? I assume it must be very slow because they have a whole. Their their uh, metabolism must be set up so that they can not do very much and survive. Yeah, so their heart actually beats at a normal rate, but it does take them 30 days to digest a single leaf, so that kind of makes up for it. Ah, I see. So very slow digestion. All right, very cool. Well, if somebody wants to learn more about sloth conservation, perhaps donate to the cause, where can people go? Where can sloth fans all over the world learn more and, and perhaps help out our furry friends? 
actually, I've just set up a non-profit foundation um, called the Sloth Conservation Foundation, um, which is a bit of a mouthful, but if anyone wants to see ways they can help, they can um, visit our website, which is slothconservation.com. Um, so, yeah. Do, are people help. able to come visit the sanctuary in Costa Rica if they're down there on vacation? Can they go, like, hang out with the sloths? Um, they can, yeah. There's a, the sanctuary is on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. If you Google it, um, the Sloth Sanctuary in Costa Rica, it'll come up. Um, it's a great place to visit, so I, I highly recommend it. Everybody listen. Book your sloth party now. All right, Becky. Uh, Becky Cliff, British zoologist at the Sloth Sanctuary of Costa Rica. We really appreciate you calling in. It was really interesting, and thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you for spreading the sloth love. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. International Sloth Day, everybody. Thank you, Becky. Uh, team, we're going to go to a break, and we'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Oh, man, team, you know, every year I, I think about this as it gets colder here in New York City. I'm just like, why? Why do I put myself through this? I think it's sort of the age old discussion that one can have about, you know, do you want the seasons or not? I mean, it's just I walk outside here. It's so cold and dreary. And I feel like some of you to cheer me up or maybe to rub it in my face will just send me. Uh, your own version of, of the Freedom Hut, wherever you are. It's like sunny. Maybe there's some palm trees. You know, you're, you're drinking caipirinhas by your pool in your house that, you know, has got like space and multiple bedrooms or something. I mean, you know, unlike here in New York City where I've had to turn my since I had to turn my closet into living space. I've also now expanded part of my living space into a closet like you just sort of go back and forth and try to find. It's like a, uh, it's like what, what's it? It's like a Tetris game, trying to just move around all the different pieces of my uh, tiny apartment. And you have the cold weather now, and this is what, as a New Yorker, you really need Christmas, right? You you need that period of the holidays, and and that's where we are now. You need that period where you have something to look forward to, and there's holiday parties, and there's a lot, sort of uh, a, lot, a lot that's going on that is meant to cheer you up, and you know, good stuff. And yet, I'll be honest with you also, whenever I have to get somewhere for work now or going to Midtown, um, it is a constant, it is a constant pain dealing with the unbelievable traffic. So this is the thing. It's this time of year where the streets are jammed. And those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, when a New York City street is packed, it means that you can't, uh, you can't get around anyone. You can't walk anywhere on the street. It is absolutely uh, shut down in terms of not shut down, but it's like almost Im- impassable. Uh, you've got so many people, so many people that are trying to get through and, and you want to be nice to everybody, but not everyone's being nice to you. You know, you got all these tourists and, and I want tourists to come to New York and be like, Oh, I love New York. It's great. Uh, but they, they've got a one, um, watch where they're walking and two walk a little faster. I know that's a very New York thing for me to say, but I, I feel like it needs to be said. You know, guys got it. Got to speed it up. It's a little bit, a little bit. All right, a little faster. Yeah, move or or step to the side. Think of the sidewalk as like a, a highway for your feet. You are moving or you are off to the side. You're not sort of standing in the middle. Oh, look at the top of the buildings. Oh gosh, look at that. There's a sky in New York. Who knew? 
so I, I, I deal with this as best I can. Uh, but the traffic in Midtown is is absolutely insane. The stuff that you have to deal with to sort of get around the city, you know, increasingly you find yourself just thinking, I, I don't know how anybody deals with it. I don't know how anybody does it. It is so uh, uh it can be so frustrating trying to get around. Anyway, I'm just giving you sort of my sense of what it's like to be in New York. Here we are, mid, uh, mid-December-ish, and we are trying to, you know, get all excited. It's holiday. Holiday is great. And I look forward to the time with family and, uh, you know, doing things, hanging out, you know, go out to the coast, have a few laughs. You know, it's it's a good time. But it, it also then, you know, that after the holidays, you get into the sadness that is January here in New York City. So I'm trying to keep my spirits up here is what I'm saying in the Freedom Hunt as I uh, sort of deal with the constant sounds of construction around me, the streets that are just packed, packed with tourists. I mean, there's tourists freaking everywhere um, and getting around the city is impossible. Everyone wants to go see the giant tree. And I know that like I, I'm starting to sound like Ebenezer Scrooge or like Bah Humbug, but you know, once you've seen the big tree, like, I feel like you've seen it, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, if you've never seen it, I understand you want to see a very big tree and it's a thing that people like to crowd in and see this tree. But for me, I, I can't get as excited about some of those. I like the tree I have with my family. That's always very nice. My mom and dad do a, a beautiful job and we all gather as a family. I just, I mooch off of their tree. I, I never have a tree. Although, John, I don't know. You can tell me maybe this year I'll get like one of those. Is it a better thing to get one of those little tiny trees that goes into a pot you know, or is that kind of depressing? You know, do you get like a little tree? It, it's like a bonsai tree, but a Christmas tree. Um, and yeah, you know, maybe maybe like a sapling. I'll have like a sapling Christmas tree in my studio apartment because that's about proportionate, right? Like a normal person's house has a normal tree. My apartment, it could be a sapling. Um, so, you know, one day it'll be a big, nice, robust Christmas tree. But for right now, um, it is definitely not that or I cannot have that because it would be way too big um and also this year i'm i'm just gonna come out and say it my i've talked to at least my siblings about this we're all adults uh we're all of a certain a certain age and um we we don't do gifts for each other anymore which i know sounds so bah humbug i'm sounding so bah humbug christmas is great guys i love christmas holiday cheer we're gonna have to start playing some christmas music on the bucks can we get can we do that can we find like in our archive some uh, or you know in our stuff john that we can use i want to find some Christmassy music so i don't because otherwise i'm just going to sound like the grinch over here uh but yeah i just for my siblings and i at least we don't give each other presents because we've realized that it's just it's like a hassle and it's stressful and, and we don't really need presents it, for kids totally presents if, if there were youngins in the sexton family like if one of my siblings had a had a kid there's a new generation i would definitely we would spoil them rotten with presents but once you're like in your 30s which pretty much the whole sexton crew is roughly in the in the thirties range. Um, you know, I just, I'm not sure we need to give each other like yet, yet another, uh, LL bean fleece or something. Like I just, there's, there's only so many we can stack up in our closets before we're like, you know what? An LL bean is lovely. Um, I swear I'm going to have more holiday cheer for you guys later on. I'm, I'm going to, as we get closer to Christmas, I'm going to start, we'll do like a, a little history of Christmas and we'll talk about St. Nick and Yuletide cheer. But just t- today is a gray, brutal day in new york city and it's cold and everyone's trampling over each other to get presents and in midtown and i'm just i'm trying to get into the holiday spirit you guys all can help me send me some messages facebook.com slash buck sexton and uh okay team we'll be right back the buck sexton show only on the blaze radio network 
now spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. Uh, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. It is time for a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. In the dark days immediately following 9-11, the Central Intelligence Agency turned to Dr. James Mitchell to help craft an interrogation program designed to elicit intelligence from top al-Qaeda leaders and terror suspects who had just been taken off the field of battle. A civilian contractor who had spent years training U.S. military members to resist interrogation should they be captured. Mitchell, aware of the urgent need to prevent impending catastrophe, uh, catastrophic attacks, worked with the CIA to implement enhanced interrogation techniques, which included waterboarding. We are now joined by Dr. James Mitchell, the author of Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Dr. Mitchell, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, so I, I don't know if you know this or not. I was actually a CIA CTC analyst, so uh, a lot of this you know, is near and dear to my, my heart, this debate, this discussion in a lot of ways. I wanted to first ask you about some of the, I think, some of the parts of your book that have gotten the most attention, at least from those who are, who are willing to actually read the book and, and get into the information and the message, is what it was like to go eye to eye with terrorists like KSM, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, uh, Abu Zubaydah, some of the worst of the worst of al-Qaeda. What was that like for you? Well, it was an emotional roller coaster. As you know from working in the agency, there's moments of crisis. And we're struggling because we have credible evidence that there's uh, credible intelligence that they're trying to pull off another catastrophic attack, maybe involving some kind of a nuclear weapon. Here he is. He's got the information. He doesn't want to give it up. And we're struggling to get it out of him. So in the beginning, it's you know, like I said, it's an emotional roller coaster. There's ups and downs, and it's difficult. I... One of the passages of your of your book uh, that that I read was about how KSM said that he was surprised at the U.S.'s response. That he was expecting a sort of uh, law enforcement approach, and and it's, and in essence, he was expecting the U.S. to just take this take nine eleven on the chin and and not do too much in response. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, Dr. Jessen, my, the other, sec- the other uh, uh, interrogator that was with me, we were asking him, what were you thinking? Because, you know, it seemed like an incredibly uh, stupid thing to do. And he said, well, frankly, I, I, didn't, I didn't think the towers would collapse. He said that we had tried to decapitate your government. We wanted to hit your center of military uh, leadership. We wanted to hit your center of, of uh political leadership in the capital, and we wanted to hit your center of finance, but we didn't believe those towers would come down. And what we fully expected is that President Bush would do what other presidents have done, you know, fire a few missiles or treat it like a law enforcement issue, and they would have time because the Taliban wouldn't uh, extradite them to get off the second wave attacks, the, the, uh, the attack, the other catastrophic attacks they had planned with aircraft for Los Angeles and Seattle. And he said, he, he looked at us and he goes, how was I supposed to know that cowboy George Bush would, la- would say he wanted us dead or alive and launch this vicious, ferocious attack? He seemed befuddled by it. So there were, I think this is something that the public has lost sight of now when we talk about 
terrorism and the response to to 9-11 and the, and the war on terrorism. I know we, people won't even call it that these days. But there were other plots. I mean, you were told by the people creating these plots, constructing them, there were other major plots against the U.S. homeland that were in motion even after 9-11. They had people on the ground inside the United States. He, uh, he had a group of uh, Thuhambali, who was the Bali bomber, who... Uh, he. he had people in Australia training to fly aircraft into buildings just like the ones that had just happened. He had a number of catastrophic attacks planned, and uh, like t- attacks often do, as we rolled those people up, they fell like dominoes. And now the people who are feeling safe on our side, the ones who really don't like to see the way the sausage is made, are trying to distance themselves by saying this huge catastrophic attack he had planned wasn't really as bad as it, as it sounds. But he fully intended to crash planes into the library tower, a library building in Los Angeles, into a bank building in Seattle, and into the Sears Tower in uh, Chicago. Now, I know there's also a sequence in the book where you discuss with uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed his uh, personal beheading of Wall Street Journal reporter Daniel Pearl, and he didn't, didn't bat an eye when talking about it, seemed proud of it. Uh, were there multiple instances when you were dealing with these high-level al-Qaeda detainees uh, in this enhanced interrogation program where you felt like you had just come across uh, somebody who had, who had chosen evil or, or who was an evil human being? Well, the way I would characterize him is he's really a comic book superhero. I mean, supervillain. He's a comic book supervillain. He's he, he can be the devil and he can be a diva. And and what happened is he just preened and bragged and uh, stood up and showed us what he had done. And when my uh, the other interrogator asked him, was it different? Was it difficult for you? Meaning, was it emotionally challenging? He said, oh, no, I had sharp knives. It was just like slaughtering sheep. The man should be executed. Uh, And I have to ask you also, when people start to uh, talk about this issue. There's a lot of emotion in it. The, the debate over enhanced interrogation. People say, people want to call it torture. They say it's tantamount to torture, and then they just started saying it is torture. What's your as, as the person who devised this program was involved in waterboarding directly? What is your response to those who say waterboarding is torture? Well, the media and almost everybody else seems obsessed with waterboarding. You know, I waterboarded almost as many lawyers, including an assistant attorney general when they were trying to decide whether or not it was torture, who then decided it wasn't, uh, as I did a terrorist. More importantly, if under common sense, if it had been torture, then Senator Feinstein and Senator McCain wouldn't have had to pass a law in 2015 outlawing it. And more than that, uh, Obama, uh, Obama's uh, Department of Justice, Eric Holder, his, his attorney general, stacked the Department of Justice with lawyers who were sympathetic to the detainees, many of whom defended them in court, uh, and, and then ordered a specific investigation to determine whether or not they had been tortured. Uh, they had a professional prosecutor with a grand jury. They looked at it for three years, and he came back and said there were no cases. Well, I mean, I just have so to say, in my mind, you know, they weren't tortured from from when I was in the agency. If I was told, you know, uh, if I was told, Buck, we want you to understand what the you know, what you could face with the enemy. We want you, with, with, we want you to know if you can withstand torture or not. 
So we're going to uh, we're going to attach electrodes all over your body and electrocute you at different levels. I, I would say no. There's there's no way I would sign on for that. If they said we were going to pull out your fingernails, I would say no. There's no way I'd sign on for that. You're telling me that people of their own volition in the U.S. government, not even just in Sears School, which is well established, but other government figures, lawyers, were waterboarded. Specifically to determine whether or not it was torture. It's more than just an interest in it. It was a specific effort to determine whether or not it broke uh, U.S. law, constitutional law, or our, uh, our uh, treaty obligations. And more than that, I would say this as well. Far more journalists have been waterboarded, albeit not like the way we did, because some of the things I've seen journalists do are more horrific than what we did, not lighter or easier. But more journalists have been waterboarded than d- detainees. Only the waterboarding was not the first or best option, and it wasn't our go-to thing. Only three detainees were waterboarded out of a hundred or so they had. Now, uh, I, I, I got to ask, who are all these FBI? It seems to be FBI guys who go on TV, and all they, they love to say that EITs. Well, first of all, a lot of them will say it's torture, but also. They don't work. This this is the story you hear from people, particularly on the left and a lot of prominent Democrats. It doesn't work. Uh, and, and they've had people from the FBI come out and say, all you need to do is build rapport. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I, I can understand why they do that. Right? They have their, uh, you know, they have a vested interest in doing that, particularly the one FBI agent who's been crowing for the last 15 years about how he got all that information when he really didn't. Uh, but I, what I would say to that is, uh, what I would say to that is they're just flat wrong. You know, if you get a, uh, if you have credible intelligence of a catastrophic attack, you've got a person who has the information you need to stop the attack. There's a sense of time urgency. That person doesn't want to give it up, and they're skilled. What are you going to do? You know, tea and biscuits isn't going to make it. It just isn't. And and here's the other thing I would say in direct response to your question: with KSM, they tied. Uh, sympathy and tea and and uh, respectful talk for two days before he was sent to the black site, and we tried again when he got there to to question him in a neutral way. And with respect to uh, uh, Abu Zubaydah, the FBI was with him for three months, and the CIA was unhappy with the responses that they got from him. Which and if you read my book, you'll see that some of the things the FBI did actually shut him down, and in my view, hastened the need to use harsh measures against him. If it had been working, they, would, they wouldn't have changed it. The CIA doesn't care where they get information. They have no vested interest in, in waterboarding or using enhanced interrogations. They would much before they volunteer it. And if they I'm had been willing to volunteer it on rapport, it, the, the program would have never existed. I'm speaking to Dr. James Mitchell, author of Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Uh, Dr. Mitchell... Uh, the information that was gathered from this program, from the program you were involved in that you devised, did it save U.S. lives? Of course it saved U.S. lives, but my opinion is probably less important than the CIA's opinion. What the CIA said is that information obtained from the detainees after being exposed to enhanced interrogation techniques helped capture terrorists who were still on the run, helped fill in blanks about what they knew about the terrorist organizations that were attacking us, stopped additional catastrophic attacks and saved lives, both in the America and in other countries like England. 
Well, there you have it on the record. And also, there was the uh, what was hard measures. Uh, have you have you seen that memoir? He, he was very. Uh, very, def- you know, def- willing to defend the enhanced interrogation program, the director of the counterterrorism center, uh, former director of the counterterrorism center. So there are, there are others out there. But n- now you get this storyline, Dr. Mitchell, that uh, that this is all lies to justify what happened. And uh, the, the people have been playing some pretty some pretty dirty games with this, including, uh, as I understand it, you believe that Senate Democrat staffers leaked your name to the media. Well, that's exactly what happened. uh, In the book, I start out with that happening. You know, I'm minding my own business, and I get a phone call immediately after the uh, Feinstein report's been released by two journalists on separate calls telling me that on deep background, the Democrat staffers on that committee told them my name. And there'll be, and that's you know, it, it's amazing to see when, and, and I'm I've been familiar with this myself. When the agency goes into freak out over that, and when they go, well, you know, I guess the public has a right to know. Oh, the public has a right to know who was involved in uh, among the most sensitive agency programs of the last thirty years. That's interesting. Yeah, I concur with what you have to say. I think I here's what my here's what I would uh, urge your listeners to think about. The political correctness that we're experiencing now, the obsessive political correctness, men like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would say is a weapon that Allah has provided in our culture, a flaw that makes us weak and allows them to operate in our midst unchallenged. And he actually at one point crowed about this to me. He said, the people will turn against you, your government will turn against you, the media will turn against you. Uh, and." Essentially, that's what happened. If Donald Trump, I was actually asked this when I, I was on CNN a week ago, and they were talking to me about the new CIA director, and they said one of their big fears is that Donald Trump has said that he would reinstate waterboarding, and therefore uh, Pompeo as director of CIA or you know wh- whomever within the IC, I assume it would be on the agency side, but who knows, might bring it back, uh, assuming that there was... Uh, it was considered to be necessary to try to break up a plot. My response was, well, I just don't think that'll happen, not not as a, a uh, judgment on the morality or even the eff- efficacy of the program, but just because people realize that, well, if you're the one who does it, as you know better than anyone, uh, Dr. Mitchell, you may be the one left uh, hanging out to dry. That's true. Let me tell you what I would say to those people. Those people, because there are people in our government who say harsh interrogation techniques, skip waterboarding, because I never thought it was the first or best thing that we should do, right? But there are people in our government who say uh, uh, harsh interrogation techniques, coercive force of any sort, should always be illegal. But if there's another catastrophic threat uh, of, uh, say, a nuclear device in, in a city, then we would expect our interrogators to do what it took and then stand up and, and, uh, and go on trial. And if they maybe save some lives, we could take that into account when we sentence them. My take on that is what they want to do is they want to live under the protection of the men and women who are willing to sacrifice themselves to save their lives, but they don't want to provide those men and women the protection of acting under the rule of law. So I, I concur with what you're going to say. In my book, I say, good luck with that, because if you, all you have to do is take a look at the way that Dr. Jessen and I have been persecuted for the last, well, over a decade, to get a sense of how difficult it is to do the right thing and then have your government turn against you. 
Dr. Mitchell, I, I could talk to you about this all day, but I, I know we've got, we've got to let you go. Dr. Mitchell is the author of Enhanced Interrogation, Inside the Minds and Motives of the, of the Islamic Terrorists Trying to Destroy America. Dr. Mitchell, really appreciate your time and your service, sir. Thank you very much for calling in. Thank you, in. sir. Thank you. Man, let's close out the buck brief there. You are leaving a secure space. Cell phones may be turned on. Disavow all knowledge of this meeting. Remember to protect sources and methods. Maintain good OPSEC at all times. We'll be right back, team. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we got some calls up. Uh, David in Arizona, another Arizona call. What's up, buddy? Hey, Buck. It's, it's uh, I can't believe I'm following uh, the the doctor there. I've I've followed those guys and honored them at least for me and what they did. Um, I mean, they've been so I don't know um, lambasted in in the media and everywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I don't even get into it. His, he, he and his family received death threats. He's on an ISIS threat list. I mean, it's been terrible. Yeah, yeah. All right, here's my here's my movie quote for you. Okay, hard turn to a movie quote. Whoa. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, not bad for a poodle shooter and a makeshift silencer. Not bad for a poodle shooter and a makeshift silencer. You got me. What is it? Shooter. Uh, I've actually never seen that movie, so oh, I, I, I think I think we're stretching great action movies here. I'm not, I, I know this is uh you know we could throw a flag on this one, but I don't know if Shooter with Mark, Mark Wahlberg qualifies as a great action movie. I'm just putting that out there, buddy. Um, I, I think if you watched it, you'd like it. Uh, I think th- I, th- I think we're I think we're you know, a little bit a little bit. I think we're stretching it just a tiny bit, but. David, you okay. got me on it. I'll give you that. And I appreciate you calling in with an action movie quote. Uh, Shield Ty, my friend. Let's talk again soon. Give me a ring. Yeah, Ty. What, do you, uh, what Ty? You're going to be my, uh, no, my that, great that, movie ombudsman. No, not buying it. No. Shooter, no. It, it, had to, it has to either be a cult classic that's been on basic cable a bunch of times or a blockbuster. That's neither. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't disagree with you on that one. I've never seen Shooter. So I, I, of course, I'm not going to. I haven't seen every action movie. There's so if you go in the action movie section of a, or you know, if you go on Netflix, you, there's so many of them that you've never heard of and that are terrible. It's you know, it's it's a genre that people feel like you can kind of enough guns, explosions, and you know, a couple of attractive ladies, and you've got yourself an action movie. Uh, it is what it is. Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
Sexton Show. Team, I'm very pleased that we're joined now by Dr. Chris McKay. He is a planetary scientist for the NASA Ames Research Center. He has a Ph.D. in astrogeophysics and was actively involved in planning for future Mars missions, including human settlements. Dr. McKay, great to have you on. Happy to be with you. So, big announcement from Elon Musk and his SpaceX uh, company from this past week. He says that we're roughly maybe 10 years away from sending groups of people, 100, 200 at a time, maybe, if everything goes on schedule, to Mars. Uh, What can you tell us about this announcement, the timelines, the feasibility, and and what you see happening here when it comes to Mars, travel, human travel to Mars? Well, I think, personally, I think it's very interesting and very exciting. And SpaceX and Musk have a record of doing what they say they're going to do. Uh, They've done remarkable things. So I think the plan they outlined is incredibly ambitious, uh, both technically and just in terms of organizing it and getting it on time. But I don't think one should underestimate uh, their capability. So I think it's an exciting time. And I, I think that announcement by SpaceX is a landmark. We're going to look back on it and see that there was a fundamental change in the way we think about humans going into space. Instead of one or two people going up just a little bit in the Earth orbit, uh, the concept is going to be lots of people spending a long period of time on distant worlds, the moon and Mars. Uh, I think it's a, an exciting development. How? What are the challenges? I mean, so there, there are sort of two parts, of this, right? There's the transport of uh, personnel and material via rocket to Mars in the first place, which I'm sure is wildly difficult and requires all you know, a tremendous amount of money, which we know because I think he said it will cost uh, ten billion dollars is what he what he expects for uh, for the the at least one of the missions. Um, and then there's the sustainability or at least a, a ability to live for a period of time, to be for a period of time on the surface of Mars. I actually want to take those in reverse, if I can, for a second. How far are we? People, I'm sure a lot of them have seen the uh, the Matt Damon movie. Uh, what, Matt Damon, what was it called? Um, Martian. Martian. Martian, thank you. Uh, how far are we from that sort of a setup where somebody could have a sort of a sustainable colony of some kind on Mars? Where are we technologically? It's interesting. The two points you raised are exactly right, transportation and then surviving when you get there, and they're related. If the transportation becomes cheap and easy, then you can bring a lot more material with you and have a much more robust infrastructure. You can bring better homes and robots and and equipment and tractors and so on. So if you can indeed drive the cost way down, then we certainly know how to build bases on, on Mars. We know how to support humans. We know what humans need. The difficulty is that getting stuff to Mars has been incredibly expensive. And Musk was very clear about this at the beginning of his presentation. He said the thing you have to do to make this happen is drive the cost of getting stuff and people to Mars by a factor of 10,000. So he is an incredibly audacious goal that we're going to reduce the cost of transport to Mars by a factor of 10,000. Once you've done that, a lot of things that were previously hard become easy. You need more Cheerios or bags of water, well, you just ship it because the cost is now 10,000 times lower than it was before you developed these new technologies. So the, the key to being able to build things on Mars and to have a comfortable, safe uh, research base on Mars is, in fact, drive the cost way down. So 
uh, I think they've analyzed the problem exactly correctly. If you can drive the cost down by orders of magnitude, everything else becomes easy. What is the surface of Mars like, if I may ask? Uh, in, you know, in layman's terms, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, incredibly inhospitable as it is now. Couldn't support life, but what exactly? What is it like? Well, essentially, it's dirt with a vacuum there. We think of Mars as having an atmosphere, but from the point of view of human physiology, it's the same as a vacuum of space. You've got to wear the same level of spacesuit you need at the space station or on the moon. Uh, you also have to worry about a uh, source of oxygen, a source of water, a source of food. So it's essentially as inhospitable as the moon in terms of experience of a human stepping out of the habitat. Now, the good news, though, is that this atmosphere and these resources can be used to make things that humans need. So you could, in principle, produce oxygen from the carbon dioxide in the thin Martian atmosphere, get water from the ice in the ground or from the atmosphere, and get and grow food in greenhouses using the Mars dirt, just like they did in the movie The Martian. So Mars can provide the things that humans need. But there's two big uncertainties that SpaceX didn't mention, although I know they're aware of them, and two big uncertainties that, uncertainties that NASA would have to deal with as well. And these are the, the lower gravity and the possibility of life. Lower gravity, meaning that just you have keeping stuff on the surface of Mars is much more difficult, well, right? Because not so much that, but the gravity on Mars is one third the gravity on Earth. And there's an assumption that that's fine for human bones and muscles. Oh, okay. We know that when humans are in zero gravity, they systematically lose calcium from their bones and their muscle mass goes down. They've got to exercise vigorously uh, and, and day, every day to maintain that muscle mass. And there are still systematic effects on physiology. Uh, the longest we've had a, a, a U.S. astronaut in space is one year. And uh, we're learning how to, to cope with it, but it's, it's, it's a problem. If one-third gravity, if Mars gravity is like one gravity, it's like being on Earth from a human physiology point of view, okay, that's sweet, that's easy, uh, that's fine. Uh, if it's more like zero gravity, that's a real problem. In fact, I think that's a showstopper. It means that this, these visions are not possible because there's nothing we can do to change the gravity on Mars. But we, in, in internal facilities, they can control that, though, right? So, or no, no? No, we cannot. We they cannot. can't. On your way to Mars, you can control the gravity because you can spin your whole spacecraft, and you can get artificial gravity in space, spinning the spacecraft, but, but you can't spin a Mars base. Uh, on the surface of Mars, you're going to just have to accept the one-third gravity. Um, we have no data on what it's like to live at one-third gravity. We have a few days of data on what it's like to live at one-sixth gravity when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon. Uh, but that's not a long enough time to see these physiological effects. So we, we, we won't know until we try. Can humans live at one-third gravity? We don't know until we try. Everyone is assuming the answer is yes. I assume the answer is yes. Uh, NASA's assume the answer is yes. Uh, the movie makers assume the answer is yes. But we don't know. Elon, yeah. But we don't know. Yeah. And, and you said the second thing is life. Uh, I'm right. sure people's right. ears perked up at that one. Right. Expand, please. Well, uh, Viking went to Mars to search for life. It looked in the sand, and what we concluded was there was no life in the sand. But not everyone agrees with that. There's a paper coming out right now 
this month in the journal Astrobiology, going back to the Viking results and making the case that the biological explanation cannot be excluded, which means there's a chance that when the astronauts land on Mars, the dirt that they're tracking into the habitat has got living organisms in it. Well, are those organisms dangerous? Are they going to grow? Uh, what do they like to eat? Uh, are they infectious? If they are there, uh, that has implications for astronaut health and safety, and it has implications for them coming home. If it turns out that the dirt that they've been drinking and eating is contaminated with an alien life form, do we really want them bringing that back to Earth? So the chances, most people would say the chances of life in the soil on Mars is small, very small, uh, and NASA's been ignoring it, SpaceX is ignoring it, the movie The Martian ignored it. But we don't know. Again, we don't know. Wow. Uh, so Elon's, uh, uh, Musk's presentation was called Making Humans a Multiplanetary Species. I mean, Dr. McKay, you're as good a person as I can think of to ask, is that something that is going to happen, you know, in the lifetime of uh, some of the people listening to the show right now? Well, I would say uh, if you want it to happen in your lifetime, uh, go running every day, uh, stop smoking, and try to live long. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so it's a while. So you're, this is uh, maybe within 10 years there'll be uh, you know, a, a, a trip, a rocket that leaves for Mars. He did say, by the way, in a New York Times article that some of the, pe that the people that go on that first trip need to be prepared for the fact that the chance of not making it back is relatively high. Is it your expectation that early travel to Mars, no matter what they try to do, no matter how safe they try to make it, would be uh, a very risky proposition? Yeah, it'll be dangerous. It'll be dangerous. Uh, there's, there has been developing a culture within the space program that accidents are not tolerated, fatalities are not tolerated, and that's just not realistic. Anytime you try to do something that's hard like this in an extreme environment, in a challenging, dangerous environment, there's a risk to life. Safety will always be taken seriously and, and maximized, and one will never be cavalier about safety, but you can't expect never to have accidents. Even driving on the road, uh, we, ex we realize that moving in cars at 60 miles an hour, there's going to be accidents and people are going to get killed. We, we try to minimize it. We try to be very safe. But there's no such thing as a system of that complexity and uh, that's not going to have some risk. And so, One more for you, Doc, before we let you go. And we really appreciate Dr. Chris McKay, who's a planetary scientist for NASA's Ames Research Center, joining us now. Um, Doc, uh, the, you've studied Mars-like environments here on Earth, including Antarctic uh, dry valleys, Siberia, Canadian Arctic, Atacama Desert. What is the single most inhospitable uh, place on the planet you've ever been? Well, for me, the most Mars-like place on Earth is the high elevations of the dry valleys. These, this is the only place on Earth that is so cold and so Mars-like that the water there is never liquid. It's only ice and vapor, and that is what characterizes Mars. Everywhere else on Earth you go, even in the other parts of Antarctica and in the Arctic and even in the dry deserts, there's still occasionally liquid water. Whereas in the high valleys, high elevations of the dry valleys of Antarctica is the only place that we found where it's Mars-like in that the water state is never liquid, only ice and vapor. So when the aliens come to Earth and ask me, hey, Chris, where can we go to feel like Mars? I'm going to send them to the high valleys of the Antarctic. All right. Dr. Chris McKay of NASA, great to have you on, sir. We really appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. Good talking to you.
That was really fun. I learned all this stuff. I don't know. That was awesome, right? Yeah. We've got to do more fun stuff like that. All right. The doc was the man, dude. He was laying it down. All right, team. See, I told you Freestyle Friday brings all sorts of goodies, everybody. you got to trust the buck. Always bet on buck. I'll be right back. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. the Buck Sexton Show. It's fascinating, you know, when you get to ask questions of somebody who has an expertise in an area that's uh, of just such high intellectual interest, right? It's planet, interplanetary travel uh, and to ask, I mean, I just don't, you know, space, I don't know much about it other than what I see in the movies. Very few of us really study it in any meaningful way. And here we have projects that are getting going that will Look, they will be able to get to Mars. There will be manned missions to Mars uh, with people that I suppose will be trying to set up a colony there. And, you know, it's just uh, it's it's not a brave new world. It's a brave new planet. It's going to be a whole new situation if they try to get that going. It'll be really uh, fascinating. It'll take a long, as he said, <laughs> to, you know, take care of yourself. If you want to be around for it, uh, it's going to take quite a while before this is... Uh, a commonplace thing and the travel is uh, more feasible and everything else but it's still it's it's amazing and to hear a, a, a scientist from nasa with a you know phd in uh, astrogeophysics telling you that there could still be life under the soil in mars that's very interesting uh what would that what would that kind of tell us i will say that the movie uh that was the sort of precursor what was the precursor to the alien movie called there's alien aliens and then they made a precursor to it um, that sort of had to do with the origins of life. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think Michael Fassbender was in it. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, Pro, uh, uh, Prometheus. Prometheus, I remember now. Based on the Greek myth about Prometheus who, was, who gave fire to mankind and then was tied up to a rock and uh, had, his, had his, I think it was like his liver or his innards or something eaten out by eagles all the time. That's a rough way to go, by the way. Perpetually eaten by, eaten by a bird. It's not what you want. It's, that's not cool. Uh, but he gave human beings fire, and so they, they, the gods punished him forever. That's Prometheus. Um, Prometheus, the movie, was not good. Uh, it was really bad, actually, uh, which was disappointing because it was supposed to be a... And it took... I, I think about it because it took on the whole notion of how life on Earth started. And spoiler alert, there's like an, a race of aliens who are like not nice who started Earth, and then they're going to destroy it, I think. I wasn't even clear on what the movie was trying to say. I watched it, and I was like... Huh? But anyway, um, I'm still waiting for him to clone dinosaurs. By the speaking of science, science fiction that I really like, Michael Crichton, may he rest in peace. The man, the guy who first really got me interested in reading for fun. Um, but anyway, I was so cool to have the doc on. I'm going to try to get more. I, I like getting experts on things like that that are kind of outside of our general wheelhouse here in the Freedom Hut to come on. So we'll keep a and a high five to producer Amy for setting that up for us. So, you know, we're going to try to uh, have more of that going on. Because uh, honestly, I could have spent an hour with you on the on the radio today talking about the polls. Oh, look at this poll! Look at that poll! I'll leave that to boring cable news networks. That's not how we roll in the hut. We have more fun here. We have more knowledge here. 
we, we, we take care of business. Um, so with that said, uh, next week we'll do a Facebook Live, by the way. I can't do it today because i got some stuff to run to. Um, but we'll do some of that next week. And I'll be in the hut every day except for Friday I'm out next week. Uh, I think either Lawrence or Michael Pelko will be in for me. But we'll have four days together in the hut, which will be great. And please download the show, as I always say. The best thing you can do to help out Team Buck is to help Team Buck grow. You do that by sharing the show with a friend. Just tell them about it. Be like, there's this cool show where everybody yells at the end, Shields high. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.